You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is a world famous comedy theater and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance and the same practices that have made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is Getting to Yes And. My guest today on the podcast is Vanessa Patrick, who is a professor of marketing and the Associate Dean for Research at the Bauer College of Business at the University of Houston. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, NPR, Fast Company, Forbes, and the Washington Post. And she's got a great new book. Called the power of saying no, the new science of how to say no that puts you in charge of your life. Enjoy the pod. Days can't be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can't be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the by the boss with the elegant watch The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock Mark the moments till the ticking stops Vanessa Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. There were actually a few different reasons that I wanted you uh, on the podcast. Um, and one of those was that having written a book called Yes And, I regularly have to explain that I'm not suggesting that Yes And is the appropriate response to every situation or context. And you've written a book called The Power of Saying No, and I suspect that you will have, if you haven't already, people who act as if you don't want people to, to say yes to anything. Absolutely. So the fact that I've, that I've written this book on saying no, people just assume that I'm the queen of no, and I go around <laughs> saying no left, right, and center. And that is so not what I want out of the book either. Mm -hmm. I want people to make choices that are good for them, which mm -hmm. means that you say yes to the things that matter and no to everything else. And yeah. that is the core of the book, really. It's about saying no to the things that don't matter, do not yeah. align with your purpose, what gives you meaning, things like that. I think, this, again, you know, one of the... Uh... One of the difficulties we get in is you you need to have sticky concepts, right, for people to, yes. to remember them. But then sometimes that, that sticky gets to stuck. Uh, and what they don't recognize is like we're talking about a whole bunch of th things that are going on and what it means to be a human being yes. uh, interacting with other human beings. And, and, you know, again, yes, and is this principle that, that people's default position is, is to say no or do nothing, which, which we know that that's true. But uh -huh. the amazing thing, and we talked about this before we got on the pod, having people like Vanessa Bonds on, on, on the podcast, yes. who talks to us about influence and this fact that actually people want to say yes to a lot. And that can be a great thing, but it also can be not such a great thing. Absolutely. So there's actually, so I, of course, cite uh, Vanessa Bond's work in my book because she talks about, just to remind your listeners, she talks about stuff like making completely unreasonable requests, mm -hmm. uh, like defacing a library book or, you know, can I just use your backyard to 
play soccer. It's like a weird request. And yet people are more likely to say yes to those things. In fact, there's a linguist called Nick Enfield who shows that linguistically, across a whole bunch of languages, the yes comes out much more fast than the no. So our willingness, like she's just so socialized to be agreeable and to say yes to things that we just say that very quickly in any conversation. That's amazing. Okay, you start the book, your opening line, your introduction is, quote, I spent my 24th birthday in an empty office staring at a fax machine, end quote. Worst birthday ever. Uh, yes. <laughs> can you tell that story and how that uh, and why that story is starting this book? Yes. So the story captures uh, the experience many of us have, where we are put in a corner by somebody, and we feel we have no option but to say yes and to comply. So this particular story uh, starts out uh, on my twenty fourth birthday, where I was. Um, Working at an advertising agency, my first job, the most junior person in the team. And my job was to write the minutes of a meeting and fax them off to the client after every client meeting. And so that afternoon, we had had the client meeting. And so I engaged in that routine task. I finished the minutes, showed them to my boss, faxed them to the client. And I was really keen on leaving and going home because there was a party that we were going to have. And I had friends and family coming home. And at five o'clock, I was ready to leave the office to beat the the traffic. And this was in Bombay, India. And Mm. traffic in Bombay is just awful. So I wanted to kind of get home so I could be ready for the party. And my boss comes to my desk and she leans over the cubicle and she says, so the minutes have been faxed? And I said, yes. And she said, did you receive a receipt that they had received the minutes? And I said, no. And she said, so she walked away to the elevator, towards the elevator. And she says, she turns around and she says, don't leave till you receive the facts, saying that the minutes have been received by the client. Mm. And I was in a state of shock. Completely shell-shocked. I couldn't believe that someone who knew that I had a party to go to and was super excited to go home would make me stay and watch for a fax. So I, I did. I spent a couple of hours just debating whether I should just go home. She wouldn't know anyway. At the end of the day, in the morning, I could have come in, pulled the fax out and, you know, dropped yeah. it, dropped it to her desk. She wouldn't be the wiser. But my sense of responsibility, I think, overtook this me in that situation. And so I called home and I said, I'd be, I, I'm coming home late. I'm just waiting for a fax. And I spent the whole evening just staring at the fax machine. I'll never forget that moment. The office started emptying out and people started going home. And of course, by about 9.30 at night, uh, the fax arrived. I pulled it out from the fax machine, placed it on her desk. And, you know, I remember that 24th birthday, thinking about that crinkly fax paper and the words received with thanks scrawled all over it. Mm-hmm. But what that moment indicated to me and meant for me was that it made me think a lot about this idea that we often get stuck in these situations that we feel we can't get out of, that we feel that we are compelled to comply, that we don't have the empowerment or the volition to 
push back and say, can I just do that in the morning? It could have, if I had just asked that question or engaged in that conversation, right? And I think that that's where the yes and comes in quite a lot Mm -hmm. in my mind. Sometimes instead of just assuming that you're stuck, if you could engage in the conversation and say, uh, I, I hear that you want this fax would it be okay if i came in really early in the morning and put it on your desk and make sure that that they've received it as opposed to sitting and waiting for a fax for hours right right right. yeah and and the end of that if she said no is that idea of like why would you want to work for this person exactly exactly and i and i doubt that she would have said no Right. Uh, I think that if I had made, if I had questioned, and I think that that's where the conversation piece is really important. You know, yeah. having opening up the door to have a conversation about how important this thing is. What is the benefit of waiting for that fax? Was it was it a game changer for that day? Right. And right, right. she probably would have realized that it wasn't and said, go home and enjoy your party. <laughs> and maybe the book wouldn't have happened. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. We, <laughs> we needed that terrible birthday. Uh, so I'm curious, though, how generational do you think this is? I mean, I'm married to a college professor. Um, so and, and I, we just interviewed a, a person who's got an expertise in generations. Do you feel like that is part of your generation? Do you see that changing now? So there's a lot of research on the Gen Zs who are who are much more empowered. Yeah. And maybe relative to us, we see them as more empowered, but I'm pretty sure that every generation thinks that the next generation is a little <laughs> bit more empowered than yes. them. Yeah. I, I think that this difficulty stems from a human condition, regardless of generation. Uh, I think it's human for us to find it difficult and find it challenging to say no. Because as I write in the book, no is a socially dispreferred response. Right. Uh, When people ask you something, they invite you somewhere, they want you to do something for them, they generally expecting that you're going to say yes. Yeah. And, you know, Vanessa Bond's research says that we have, so we learn that people are going to say yes when we ask them for stuff. And so saying no goes against that expectation, which is why it is so hard. So you have a few tests early in the book, which I yes. took. Um, okay. So I will give you I will give you my results right now. Uh, in the concern for relationship survey, I scored a thirteen. I okay. think that's pretty good. Yeah. I didn't do so well on concern for reputation. I scored a twenty-two, which was higher uh. than I think I wanted that to be. And the difficulty saying no, I scored a five, and I felt very very good about that because I I feel like. And I don't know, some of this is definitely age experience, that, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. But I know this reputational piece is, is important. And, and, and I think it's important for some good reasons. And I think, but I think like all things that can bleed over into yes. not so good reasons. Yes. That's where I, that's where I score the highest as well. You too. Okay. Uh, I, and, and it's, it's, it's completely normal as a professional to be concerned about your reputation. And when you turn stuff down that you want to make sure that you're, you're not seen as less competent. Right. And so uh, I think that, 
when you think about those three factors, those three factors are the reason, the main reasons why people don't know how to say no, or that they say yes, when they want to say no, one is concern for relationships, Mm -hmm. concern for reputation, and just not knowing, having the words to be able to say no. Um, And I think our concern for relationships is definitely high across, and we see a gender difference there. Sure. Uh, women, women, of course, uh, tend to be much more communal and they want to form community and they want to be part of a community and, and a social group. And so they are more likely to have that concern for relationships very high. Both men and women are concerned for reputation. And the willingness, the understanding and the ability to say no is learned in many cases. Yeah. This is right. We had Annie Duke on the podcast who wrote uh-huh. this perfect book on quitting, right? Yes. And it's a similar thing, which is culturally, yes. this is that, that no one likes a quitter. No. And then, but when I reflect on powerful changes in my life, they relate to quits. Whether, whether yes. it was a bad marriage or, you know, a bad job or whatever, those, those are turning points. And so, so often when I talk to people who feel stuck, um, it's, it's in part because they haven't figured out, you know, I'll call it saying a yes and to yourself. It's also saying a no to the thing. You know, I mean, this yes. is like, and, and, and that's what, what you're talking about in the book. Absolutely. I was actually talking to Annie only yesterday. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, so we talked a lot about uh, quitting and how quitting is so related to uh, no, because mm-hmm. in ma- in many ways, they're both subject to those same social norms where yeah. quitting is bad, saying no is bad. These are the things that we've learned. And we tend to stay away from the things that people tell us is bad for us. But as Annie shows, quitting can be very productive and a smart thing to do. And quitting early is better than uh, recognizing that this is not a good thing for me and quitting. In many ways, quitting involves saying no. You have to say no to the opportunity. You have to say no and face the consequences and, and quit as a result. So absolutely saying no is such an important skill uh, that, that we can learn this uh, similar to quitting um you and i share a cringe which is stadium mm-hmm. proposals ah. <laughs> so, <laughs> explain why that's a cringe for you and also that, that it relates to this idea around the spotlight effect yes uh, so d- so the the stadium proposal moment is what i describe as these moments that occur in our regular life where mm-hmm. we suddenly are trapped by a situation and we feel like everyone is watching us. And it's like, and I liken it to being proposed to at a stadium and you've got 10,000 people staring at you. Can you say no? Mm-hmm. Even if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. And I really hope that people know that they're going to be proposed to at a stadium. I would because hope otherwise so. it's super awkward yep. to, to be on that jumbotron and being asked in front of everyone. Uh, and I think, you know, when we, when we think about it, we can recognize for ourselves these stadium proposal moments and we can recognize and learn from them. So we can find out, we can think through the fact that we tend to get stuck in these situations. So imagine you're at a, at a meeting and someone's asking uh, for volunteers to do something. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Sometimes someone volunteers us 
But very often we feel the spotlight on us, even though it's not there. And we volunteer ourselves. We say, I'll do it, even though you really don't want to do it. And those are the things that we need to learn from and manage. Uh, we, this idea comes up a lot because when we're teaching people uh, a lot of improv, what we talk about is like, you cannot improvise successfully if you are in judgment of self or others. Um, and so this idea of, of losing that again, and and both are important. They, they, they're, they're both the reason we do or don't do things. A lot of times is, is that sort of judgment piece. Um, and, uh, um, oh, and what, what we don't understand is, is the science around the fact that like most people are thinking about themselves. (laughs) They're they're not thinking about you. And you have a, (laughs) you have a lovely study about a t-shirt in the section that I'd love you to tell our, our listeners about. Yes. So I, so I cite the study where it, uh, where the researchers had someone wear uh, a t-shirt, enormous t-shirt with the face of Barry Manilow on it. And, uh, In in that study, the people wearing the T-shirt were extremely self-conscious and they thought that everyone would notice uh, the the fact that they were wearing that T-shirt and, you know, they were willing to exchange, give up certain things, certain benefits that they could have in order to wear a T-shirt that was less embarrassing. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that very few people in that room even notice their t-shirt. So this is kind of the classic spotlight effect where we think everybody is noticing every small thing about us, but the reality is everybody is so focused on their themselves. They're paying very little attention to you. Mm. Uh, another thing that I found was really interesting. You talk about communication expert, Holly Weeks, who says that people usually argue their no backwards. Explain that. So people tend to think about their no, think about what they want or what the other person wants. Let me say this again. Yeah. Um, People very often think about the, the response that the other person wants to hear and then works, work around that. Mm. which is, you know, responding to what the other person wants. Whereas my process and my method involves you looking inwards. So you start with asking yourself whether you want to do it and work from there to arrive at a solution that would probably be workable for you and the other person. Because on because if you want to do it and the other person wants you to do it, great. But if you don't want to do it, but the other person wants you to do it, that's not so great for either party. You're mm-hmm. doing something you don't want and that person is making you do something that you don't want, which is only going to make that person resentful and or is going to make you feel resentful to the other person. Sorry. Yeah. No, no, that's fine. What, what's fascinating about that I mean, this is, again, a yes and, in, in, in essence, because you, what you're doing is you're anchoring, anchoring yourself in a sort of negative, the mm-hmm. story you're telling yourself, right? Yes. Um, and, and one of the things you write about the book sort of beautifully, I think, is this idea of self-knowledge, that, yes. that the, the way you get here is with a deep understanding of not just who you are, but what you value, what's your purpose, what's yes. meaningful to you. Yes. And, and that, that, I mean... 
that's so lovely in the sense that it, it takes all the um, negativity out of the no. Absolutely. I think it's about giving voice to your values, understanding. And, I, and I'm really big on understanding what you uniquely bring to the table. Mm-hmm. When, you are, when you are asked to do something that you and only you can do, and you have this amazing, unique way of doing it, by all means, you should say yes. But if anyone could do it, and it's something that you don't want to do, chances are the asker can find someone else. And and that's what I talk about in the book as well. You know, if you say no, the the asker is simply going to go to the next person. Yeah. And that person might say yes. And maybe that for that person, it is important that they that they take on this responsibility. And so in many ways, thinking about you know what you want, make you the starting point, looking inwards. And that's what I mean when we talk about the Holly Weeks talking mm-hmm. about reversing the thing. We tend to default to looking at what the other person wants yeah. and how we will be disappointing the other person. And one of the key ideas in the book is saying no is about a reflection of you. It is mm-hmm. not a rejection of the other person. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think that that is a really important thing to remember, that your no doesn't have to be rejecting the other person. You might be saying no to the request. You are not saying no to the person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you also talk in, in this part about the importance of specificity, which is so true in, in our work, both in terms of improv and comedy, because like no no one laughs at something that's vague. Yes. <laughs> so you're like, all right, why are they not laughing? Because there's no truth. There's no truth in there. And the things we laugh at are very specific and they're very true. And yes. and that I think correlates wonderfully to human interaction. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Don't give me your vagaries. Like, like if I if I know who you are, if I know a little bit of where you come from, mm-hmm. we have such a communication advantage over anyone else that, that that that's in the room together. It's it's and I just I don't. The one here is one of the problems is like no one trains us on this stuff. No, this is what's hilarious, right? <laughs> and I know your college professor is like some of the most important things, like how we make decisions, how human beings behave, like are not really taught in school. Yes. You know, in my leadership classes, we do, we spend so much time thinking about values and what we value and the values that we base our decisions on. Because once you have a good sense of where your values are, what your priorities are, what your preferences are, do I prefer this or that? How do I like things to be? Just that self-knowledge can allow you to be able to say no so much more effectively because then you you are speaking from a place of truth and people respond favorably to that. You say no from a place of truth, from a place of authenticity, you're more likely to get compliance from the other person. Uh, I made a note when I was reading your book. Um, the very first time we were at the University of Chicago, we were talking about this program we wanted to do. And uh, my wife, Anne, was tasked with co-teaching executive Ed program with Richard Richard Thaler, noted Nobel Prize winning economist. And it was a very Tony group who had paid a lot of money to hang out with Richard Thaler, maybe just 13 people, all, uh, yeah, all white men, um, very high status. And Anne has an exercise that she does, a status exercise, where she has people, uh, two people have a conversation, one person needs to nod to the other person, and then they switch roles. Mm. And she had this one guy who refused to nod. He wouldn't do it. And she's like, well, no, you just have to do it. He's like, I, 
he, he wouldn't do it. And, and you talk about nodding in, in this chapter in terms of, in the chapter around bringing your whole self to empowered refusal. Uh-huh. That is a lowering of status. Yes, yes. But you have to agree with the other person. You have to be part of this conversation. It's not, uh, and the, that chapter talks about this important competency of using your body language in yeah. order to help not only buffer a harsh refusal. So you can say no with your words, but you want to also soften it by with smiling and nodding and kind gestures, but it also helps secure the relationship with the asker. People respond not only to the language, but also to the nonverbal cues with which you communicate. Yeah. And breathing. I mean, the, the, the other thing, I mean, having gone through therapy and other things, it's just like, we, we should not, we can't underestimate the power of those deep breaths, whether they're before we have a difficult conversation, before we have a good mm-hmm. conversation, it's always yeah. tuning up your instrument. Yes, yes, yes. There's a, I cite the book where she talks about, uh, the book on the voice coach who Mm -hmm. talks about the voice as an instrument. And it's so important that you come across as, as empowered when you are saying no, that you are in a, from a place of power. And all of these cues, your voice, your body language, your gestures, they all communicate empowerment when we feel empowered like i i i uh there's a student in my class who talked about empowered language so i have the students in my executive class repeat after me things like i don't take the elevator when i can take the stairs right. i don't take calls between 6 and 8 in the evening i never uh, skip a skip the gym when yeah. I've scheduled to go. So these empowered language, language, which comes from who we are, you can't say those words without coming across as empowered. Mm-hmm. But the words have this feedback effect on our bodies. And so she called them standing up words. And yeah. that's where, you know, this empowered language that I talk about in the book, I refer to as standing up words because we, we come across as much more empowered when we use empowered language. One of the things is always, since I started doing this work and working with scientists, is the idea of faking it till you make it. It's <laughs> very scientifically sound. It's just this idea of like, no, no. And and, and I think like you, you say the thing. Mm-hmm. Try, try it out in your mouth. <laughs> try, yes. try, try out what it feels like to um, assume confidence, to assume competency. And, and what you what you also realize is like and we talked about this before too is like well you can also realize realize why con men are so successful because they're just doing that yeah and and I think with empowered refusal uh, it's not something that you can just turn on a switch you have to try it out right you, you have, have to, to practice it. yeah and so once you develop these competencies that I talk about then you need to practice them and they might not feel natural the first few times you do them because it sounds as if you're faking it, right? Or yeah. feels as if you're faking it. But that's how you actually gain the skill. You practice and then it becomes much more, much more comfortable. Like everything communicating. else. Absolutely. <laughs> like everything else. Yes. All right. Why do walnut trees show up in your book? <laughs> so um, walnut trees uh, is, is the euphemism that I use for mm-hmm. these people who will not take no for an answer. So the literature you probably know talks about these difficult people that we constantly have to deal with in our lives, 
in the workplace, bullies and uh, tyrants and um, jerks. I use the, the word walnut trees. And the reason I use walnut trees is because the um, North American black walnut tree is this impressive tree with a luxuriant canopy that dominates the landscape. And it has an, a root network that goes out 50 feet and the reason it dominates the landscape is because it exudes into the soil this chemical called juglone. It's a herbicide. And what that does is it stunts the growth or kills everything else in its vicinity. Mm-hmm. And so that's why walnut trees are the kind of people who will not take no for an answer. It's their way or the highway. It's what they want. And so even if you use an empowered no, Sometimes you will encounter people that who will behave like walnut trees and refuse to listen. And so I talk about the walnut tree uh, and how to spot a walnut tree, how to recognize their tactics and how to deal with them. Yeah, because it's not easy, right? And you, t- you talk about this idea no. of creating distance is one way you can deal with that. The, the, but I think at a certain, at a certain point and this, this will come up in, in when I'm giving talks is people be like, I've got this boss who's terrible. There's no way he'll ever yes. And anything, but, and they go down this litany and like, what should I do? And I'm like, quit. I don't know what to tell you. Like yes. you're not, it, it isn't going to get better. People don't just change out of, you know, midair. Um, and, and that's, and that's, again, that's hard. We talked about it before. It's hard to quit. It's hard hard to say that this is not going to work, but sometimes it's the right thing to do. Right. And, you know, some people I've spoken to also talk about difficult bosses and they've come up with strategies that work for them and help them deal with it. So there's Mm -hmm. one person who has a yelling boss. So this is a typical walnut tree behavior. Don't like something, you yell, yell, yell. And what she realized is every time he went up an octave, she went down an octave. Uh-huh. She was whispering. Right. And the vocal contrast made it so salient that he was yelling. Right. That he suddenly became pretty self-aware that this is like, this is weird. Uh, because wow. she was like going softer yeah. and softer. Yeah. And it was a very oh, yeah. subtle strategy. And I yeah, thought that great. was pretty brilliant. It. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, that, it's almost like an acting technique. You're creating contrast. And it's, it's sort of like, and, and so you can't, in in theory, one couldn't ignore that. Yeah. So she wasn't disagreeing with him. She was, but the thing is, she kept her cool and yeah. she started practicing this, this technique. And she realized without necessarily articulating it verbally, she was doing it. And he was realizing that his screaming was not working very well. And she was just going lower and lower and lower. And, and he stopped yelling, which was great. Mm. Yeah. 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 You have a, uh, a fact in here uh, where you say, quote, face-to-face is 34 times more effective at getting you to say yes. Yes. So this is salient in the sense that we live in hybrid work environments now, and people are asking the question of whether people should be coming back into in certain spaces. And and look, I understand there, there's a lot of um, um, power and... and um, equity and, and other things that, that involve when people don't have to be a slave to the nine to five in-person, mm-hmm. in-person job. However, I think in what your the science seems to show is that overwhelmingly it is when people are in these spaces together is where you find more agreement. 
more uh, more agreement, but also more likely to do stuff you don't want to do, right? So look <laughs> at that too. So there's a dark so, side to that. So yeah, there is. So uh, the 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 part I'm concerned with is the the fact that the technology allows you gives you the space and time to think a little bit about mm-hmm. whether you want to do it or not. A face to face request is very very often demands an immediate response and an immediate response might mean that you are not necessarily saying response saying yes in a thoughtful way you're not taking the time to think is this the right thing for me to do should i say yes to this you're just saying yes uh and 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 so we have to there are benefits to having a technology as that buffer which allows us that disconnect between the ask and the answer or the, yeah. a temporal space if you will so i think what's happening in a lot of these conversations about hybrid work is they're asking the wrong questions or or or, or conceiving of the problem incorrectly which is not you know right so 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 for for me when i think about it, you know i think about the fact that like well when do we want people in these spaces and what do we expect them to be doing? And so yes. for me, it's like, if there is collaborative work to be done yes. that will benefit from face-to-face, do your, yes, do your yes work here, right? But yes. other work, you don't need to. I so agree. Mm. I personally have made, as a professor, I get to choose how I want to, sp- how I want to spend my time and yeah. the way I want to spend my time. And so with, with collaborative work, I am definitely on campus having those meetings, developmental work that we are spending time building something together. But a lot of the other stuff, administrative stuff that doesn't require that I can do from home. And that makes, and, and I've made those choices for myself. Yeah, I was having lunch with uh, uh, a professor recently, and she had sort of said that the gift of COVID allowed her to figure out a way of living. She teaches on the East Coast, lives in Chicago, and now has, you know, worked out so that, you know, I I travel when I need to do this this certain kind of work and other work I I can do from here, which just no one was going to give you that option before. So didn't exist. Absolutely, absolutely. And I've been spending a lot of time thinking about the benefits of that also for people with disabilities, people with disabilities who had not had the opportunity to contribute to the workforce because we didn't have those options now can actually valuably contribute uh, from home, which is Mm -hmm. amazing. Mm -hmm. All right. We always close the podcast uh, asking for a yes and story. So, uh, So you won't live solely as the no lady. Yes. <laughs> Can you tell us a yes and story? That was such a great question. Um, the the yes and story that popped into my mind mm-hmm. was from 2013. So I had become, uh, I had gotten tenure. And for people listening, tenure is this big deal in academia, mm. right? You have, uh, uh, you have a, a lifetime employment and you have free academic freedom to pursue anything you want, which is a big deal. So I got tenure in 2009 and I'm the kind of person who has a plan. And my plan was to go up for full professor within five years and have all the research articles that I needed and stuff like that. Four years after tenure, my department chair walks into my office and says, you want to go up for full? And it was not part of 
my plan. Mm. And so I would have probably told him, I'm not ready. Uh, am I? No, I don't think I should. I should wait for the five years as per my plan. But I had just finished reading Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In. Okay. And it had just come out in 2013. And there was a little voice in my head that said, lean in, Vanessa. Mm-hmm. And that was my yes and. Instead of saying no, I asked him, tell me more about why you're thinking that. Like, why, why do you think I'm ready? Mm-hmm. So I opened that possibility. And I went, I sailed through the full professor pro, uh, uh, process. And I think about that as, you know, not getting in my own way. My own plan was getting, would have probably gotten my own way and not allowed me to go up a year early, not allowed me that, that, that sense that, okay, it's behind me. Now I can think about the other things I want to do. And so I very often think about that moment as a yes and moment because mm. it could have very, very likely have been a no but moment. I love it. The book is called The Power of Saying No, The New Science of How to Say No That Puts You in Charge of Your Life. Vanessa Patrick, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Kelly. This was fun. Getting the Yes And is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor is Iridian Fierro from WGN. We get support at the Second City from Colleen Fahey, Mike Farinaccio, and Emma Smith. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. For more information about the Second City, you can go to www.secondcity.com or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com.
sauvage. 